Welcome to the How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast, presented by the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber in Boston. Join us as we review some of the more complicated colon and rectal cancer cases and discuss the treatment decisions with leading medical experts in the colorectal cancer field. Good afternoon, Jeff. We have an exciting topic in that we're going to talk about enhanced recovery after surgery. Enhanced recovery after surgery is a concept that came about over the past five or six years where you take the patient through the encounter of surgery with less stress and with a faster recovery. The three tenants are non-narcotic pain control, carbohydrate loading prior to the surgery, and then early ambulation. And during the surgery, the anesthesiologist's optimize the fluid so that they get less fluid and therefore have less fluid to offload in their recovery. And we've had tremendous results at at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and also throughout the whole partner system. But this brings up the next question. These patients are getting through the surgery better, and if they have a cancer, are being able to get to the oncologist sooner And so our colleagues across the country, particularly your medical oncology colleagues, have come up with the concept of RIOT, or return to intended oncologic therapy. So give us your um, opinion and and observations about the last couple years as patients have come to get their adjuvant therapy and about this metric RIOT. Yeah, and I think it's a really important topic and a, a topic both that I think will affect efficacy-related treatment as well as quality of life. I mean, we now see patients much earlier for their initial consultation if there's someone who has early-stage disease um, and they're coming to discuss adjuvant therapy. They're not coming with edema all over them. They're coming in less pain. They really look, you know, there's clearly an improvement in, in overall how they're feeling. So let's take initially the people who are going to receive adjuvant therapy. All the studies for adjuvant therapy had patients enrolled between three and eight weeks after their surgery. Um, If there's someone who's beyond eight weeks, it's not that we wouldn't give them adjuvant therapy. You still wouldn't want to give them, particularly if it's someone who has a lot of nodes. Um, But, and there have been studies that have tried to look at the question, how efficacy is related to how far you out are out from surgery. Now, some of those studies are, you know, tough to interpret because there's clearly biases, right? So, Things that make you take longer till you are able to get adjuvant therapy may be things that are also related to the ultimate outcome, right? So someone who has considerably worse disease, they may have more complications unrelated to all the measures you guys are doing to have them have a a, a improvement in terms of uh, recovery from their surgery. But inevitably, you know, they had uh, stuff stuck to the side pelvic wall, other things that can lead to longer recoveries, and those may be affecting outcome. But I think still think the logic is if you have microscopic disease, the faster you get onto chemotherapy to kill that microscopic disease before it becomes more cells, presumably that uh, can help outcome. And so we are seeing people that were getting on therapy by three, four weeks, mostly all of them by six weeks. And again, it may improve their efficacy and, and cure rate, but it also gets them through the whole process of their cancer and they're continuing faster and and that's you know I think patients are anxious to get on chemotherapy and and be done with chemotherapy 
in the adjuvant setting. So from both of those perspectives, I think going into chemotherapy, feeling better, being able to start it earlier, being finished earlier, and through the whole continuum for their uh, uh, non-metastatic disease is important. The interesting thing as well is that it may bring up other questions, particularly when a patient has both primary and metastatic disease. There is this discussion and unanswered question of, should you take out the primary first and then have them recover and get their therapy for their metastatic disease, or should you give chemotherapy first and then have the patient get out their primary, particularly if they respond? There's been a bit of a discussion and maybe the pendulum swinging back to getting the primary out earlier because of some clearly not perfect studies, but studies that show a, a survival advantage. What do you think? If we have safer surgery with outcomes that are better, both in terms of the number of patients that don't have any complications and the fact that the patients are ready and recovered from their surgery sooner, can we start asking the question or even uh, getting more aggressive with getting that primary out and then the medical oncologist doesn't have to worry about it in terms of bleeding, obstruction, or perforation? Yeah. So, And you're right. There's definitely been a pendulum. And so I think this conversation is focusing on the patients you don't think are curable with stage 4 disease, right? So there's, there's a separate conversation, and, and I think uh, faster recovery of surgery is particularly important in people have potentially resectable metastases. So if it's one or two liver lesions, they present, present synchronously. You know, there's various orders on how to do things. Sometimes the surgeries can be at the same time. Sometimes they're sequential, and the faster you can recover between them, that's important. But taking the case of someone you don't think is going to become resectable in terms of their metastatic disease, does removing the primary help. And I absolutely agree. It's a pendulum. When I first started uh, as a fellow in 2000, there was, I had learned, principle was, if particularly if it's a left side tumor, those become obstructive more, those have to come out before you think about giving them chemo. And maybe the right side tumors, the calibers, uh, uh, wider and things like that, maybe some of those could be left in. That's how I learned it initially. And so not even thinking about sideness, often we would take it out because we would worry about obstruction in particular. Um, and then there were studies that came out that said that actually most of these people don't get into trouble. Um, in fact, it's probably less than 10% of people who land up getting in trouble from their primary. That has nothing to do with in terms of how it affects survival, but that they don't, over the course of their disease, get into trouble from their primary. So, I, I, so I'm a believer in that. I think you're absolutely right. The question is, is, does it at the end of the day have a survival advantage? There was a randomized study in renal cancer that removing the primary did clearly impact survival. We don't really have as good of a study of that in colon cancer, and I think that's still a topic. There are actually several ongoing studies throughout Europe that may get an answer to that question. Some of them have had some difficulties in enrollment, but we may get an answer from some of those studies about that. And we've had conversations, including through the Alliance and the Cooperative Group, that you can think of removing the primary as a mode of therapy, as another mode of therapy. It's not, you know, people do recover much quicker from that. And so is debulking disease, preventing the 10% of people who get complications, but again, at the end of the day, does it help survival? Given that they can recover sooner from surgery, 
for a lot of patients is less of a concern that they're you're really delaying their metastatic disease. Now, I think there's some people who have pretty uh, high burden of disease that you wouldn't want to do that in, that you still want to try to get them on sooner. It's the people who have lower level of metastatic disease, lower burden, that I think it's still a, an unanswered question. I think that there's probably still inconsistencies till maybe we get some more data from those European trials. Well, that will be the topic, I think, for our next podcast, is we'll present a couple patients who have, as you say, low burden of metastatic disease, but non-resectable metastatic disease, and maybe talk about the indications for who is not a candidate for, let's say, early resection. But I think it's time to rethink the, the, our paradigms because we've challenged them in surgery, and lo and behold, people are going home two or three days sooner with less stress and less uh, complications that in the, the sort of the cancer treatment, maybe we can either rethink batting order of uh, what comes up first or uh, rethink timing of adjuvant chemotherapy, as you say, to maybe push it a little sooner if the patient's ready to go. Absolutely agree. All right, thanks. Today's episode is going to be about enhanced recovery after surgery. We're here with Kevin Elias, who's one of my colleagues in GYN Oncology here at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Kevin. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Brigham Women's Hospital. Uh, I focus on treating women with ovarian, endometrial, uh, cervical, and vulvar cancers. And uh, as a gynecologic oncology surgeon, our specialty is a uh, mixture of gynecologic surgical procedures along with other pelvic surgical and upper abdominal procedures, usually for debulking uh, metastatic gynecologic cancers. Over the past couple of years, our paths have crossed because we have instituted this enhanced recovery after surgery protocol called ERAS, as has the GYN Oncology Group. And I think we've offline, we've talked about just the dramatic differences and improvements in the care and the outcomes of the patients. What, what have you seen in GYN Oncology? So we started implementing the enhanced recovery principles towards the end of 2015. And after uh, a year of instituting the ERAS principles across our program, we saw that our length of stay went down dramatically for our patients from a, a median of five days for exploratory laparotomy and staging to, to three days. Uh, and it continues to decrease. Uh, now it's actually less than three days. But what we want to talk about today, and this is something that came up with an expert in this field, Ali um, Lundquist, is the perhaps the better outcome long-term oncologically with enhanced recovery after surgery protocols, but at least also the improvement in the number of patients that can get to their therapy after surgery. Tell us a little about, about that metric and what have you have seen both in the long-term and medium-term outcomes with ERAS. We've been focused on a metric known as return to intended oncologic therapy, or RIAD, which is the concept of how long does it take from completing a surgery before the patient can resume whatever their adjuvant therapy is going to be, whether that's radiation or chemotherapy. Uh, in gynecologic oncology, we have patients who receive either uh, one modality or the other, or sometimes both modalities. And the literature has been very clear uh, in the gynecologic oncology field 
that patients with a delayed resumption of adjuvant therapy following surgery have adverse outcomes. And what about the long-term outcomes? Have you heard anything about better uh, survival in patients independent of whether they were going to get chemotherapy or not, just by going through enhanced recovery. Is, is there any biology there as well? Well, we know from the uh, ERAS Society, uh, when they looked at survival for colorectal cancer patients, the patients who were taken care of uh, under an ERAS pathway that actually complied with the pathway had better five-year overall survival outcomes. So t- let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of enhanced recovery, because it's very similar between our two uh, uh, groups. Um, we do laparoscopic robotic and open surgery, a mixture of it depending on the disease and the patient, as do you. T- talk us through the encounter with the patient in terms of enhanced recovery. One of the fundamental principles of enhanced recovery is engaging the patient at the onset. So for us, enhanced recovery starts in the office and getting the patient in the mindset of preparing for surgery as if they were going to be preparing for a race or some other major athletic endeavor. We want to get patients out of the mindset of saying, you're being in the office today, you'll be ready for surgery tomorrow. We want to actually help them to optimize their success for surgery. So that means counseling patients about smoking cessation, drinking cessation, getting them more physically active before surgery, talk, you know, screening for nutritional deficiencies, anemia uh, before surgery. So the patient comes into the operating room as strong as they can possibly be. We've also moved away from the the age-old surgical concept of bringing patients into the operating room hypovolemic and starving. (laughs) Uh, So again, using the race mentality, the idea that you would run a marathon tomorrow and not eat beforehand and take a whole bunch of dehydrating laxatives before you went and ran the race, nobody would do that. And really, we need to apply the same idea to surgery. We want patients to come in as physiologically normal as possible. So now patients are encouraged to uh, eat day before surgery, to maintain oral hydration as normal as possible before surgery. We no longer fast patients after midnight, which is one of the most important principles of enhanced recovery. Uh, We allow patients to drink clear liquids up until two hours before the surgical procedure, and we actually give them a carbohydrate load in the morning of surgery. Uh, Much like you would carbo load before a race, we want patients to have a sustained amount of nutritional stores to really last them through the period uh, of being uh, NPO over the course of the day. It's interesting that the guideline by the uh, anesthesiologists on allowing patients to drink clear liquids up until two hours before, I think was published in 1999 or 2000. And it's been almost 15 years uh, up until about 2015 when we both aggressively adopted this ERAS that uh, both the surgeons and the anesthesiologists and the patient all began to adopt this, this concept of allowing a patient to come in to the operating room having had like a sports drink if you don't have these uh, nutraceutical drinks or these special nutraceutical drinks, which are essentially a, uh, a fancy clear liquid. What is, we're getting a little off topic here, but why do you think it took so long for us to just adopt that one concept, which allows us to avoid starvation physiology while our patients are undergoing surgery? I think that there's, um, dogma takes a long time to change. I mean, we know it usually takes 10 to 15 years for people to change practice, despite when the evidence is out there. I think there's also been a, a change in medical practice in general over the last, I would say, 20 to 30 years, as we transition from having patients 
coming into the hospital pre-op, where maybe it made more sense if you had them coming into the hospital pre-op to have them NPO the night before surgery. Patients are coming in from home now. Our surgical times are more scheduled. So I think we have had this concept for a long time when the patient is added on for surgery. We don't know when they're going to go to surgery. We keep them NPO. But a patient with a scheduled elective case should be drinking beforehand. Yes. And so so that's one of the steps. Um, so you have the office engagement, uh, the setting of expectations. You have the carbohydrate load. Uh, then what are the next steps of uh, enhanced recovery? When it comes to the surgery itself, we want to minimize the surgical stress on the patient. So one of the key things is trying to optimize multimodal analgesia and multimodal nausea prophylaxis. So multimodal analgesia includes preemptive analgesia, so patients are getting uh, both of our services, Tylenol and Celecoxib, orally, preoperatively, uh, which has been shown to cut down on postoperative uh, opioid requirements. Both of our services use regional uh, anesthetic techniques, um, primarily thoracic epidurals. Um, if a patient's unable to receive a thoracic epidural, they would get uh, either a wound catheter or a tap lock. Uh, again, the goal is to, to minimize opioids for patients. Opioids slow down return of bowel recovery, they make patients more sedated, they uh, prolong hospital stay. Not to mention all of the other long-term implications of opioids that we're, we're well aware of with the opioid epidemic in this country. Um, when it comes to uh, after the surgery, we're trying to return the patients to physiologic function as quickly as possible. So patients are instructed to mobilize on the day of surgery. We want patients out of bed, ideally in the recovery area before they've even gotten to the floor. Certainly out of bed on the day of surgery itself. We turn the IV fluids off the day of surgery. There's no more 24 hours of IV fluids, 48 hours of IV fluids. Uh, our goal is six hours, the fluids should be off. Um, the patient by that time should be drinking liquids again. So there's no more, even if they've had a colonic resection, there's no more keeping the patient NPO until return of bowel function. We know that they are actually uh, likely to recover more quickly and avoid complications, have less postoperative nausea if you start feeding the gut. Yes, and one of the other things that in the operating room, both your anesthesiologists and our anesthesiologists use this concept of goal-directed fluid therapy, uh, either on a more straightforward case, an index, uh, it's sort of zero uh, balance um, uh, fluid with a formula, on more complicated patients, stroke volume monitoring with an esophageal Doppler, but there are other instruments out there to do stroke volume monitoring. Because it's, it's an interesting concept where we used to follow these sort of indirect findings of how the heart's doing with blood pressure, pulse, and urine output. But now with an esophageal Doppler, we can actually see if the heart is maximally full and optimized. Because in the past, if it gets optimized and you, uh, uh, you maybe had low urine output, you'd keep giving fluid so they'd be basically over-optimized on the Starling curve and then have to mobilize that fluid at a later date. On your large endometrial and ovarian cancer resections, do your anesthesiologists uh, have a dialogue with you uh, about the stroke volume monitoring and, and other aspects of the fluid management? Fluid management is one of the most important intraoperative principles. Um, most of our cases are, are going to require some sort of stroke volume monitoring. Our general guideline is if we expect the case may have uh, either greater than 500 uh, ml blood loss, not that it will, but just a potential for it, 
uh, or that we expect the total fluid requirements to be more than a liter and a half over the course of the case, we want the patients to have some sort of stroke volume monitoring. That's the majority of our cases is when it comes to, certainly to malignant cases, which is most of our practice. Um, as far as uh, fluid administration during a case, this is another one of those uh, myths of, of surgery principles that we've all uh, been instructed uh, with the idea that just because someone has an open abdomen that they must be rapidly dehydrating and need large volumes of fluid infused into them. And there really is no scientific evidence to support that idea. So this, uh, these concepts of how many quadrants the patient's abdomen has exposed and calculating fluid per hour is actually ridiculous. Uh, if the patient is not actively hemorrhaging, uh, their fluid loss is, is pretty minimal, actually. Um, so the idea that once the patient is in the operating room, the fluid should just be running wide open throughout the course of the case, and that you would have the same amount of fluid just based on time going in for a minimally invasive minor procedure uh, versus a, a major cancer uh, cytoreductive surgery is ridiculous. So now you really want to tailor the fluids to the patient's volume losses with the goal that the patient comes into the operating room euvolemic and leaves the operating room euvolemic. One of the ways that we've seen this play out very dramatically in our service is that, particularly for uh, ovarian cancer or cytoreductive surgery, our rate of pulmonary complications postoperatively, uh, meaning the patient had a persistent oxygen requirement, they developed a pleural effusion, they had pulmonary edema and needed diuretics afterwards, it was historically between 10 and 15% of patients. It was essentially considered part of the routine post-operative course. Two or three days of IV fluids followed by two or three days of furosemide. I think the fluid off. Uh, I'm sure you probably used to have something quite similar. Um, we have seen that essentially eliminated. So now it's 1% or fewer patients uh, run into that surgical complication. And, and I attribute that entirely to better fluid management perioperatively. Yeah, to that end, we are uh, submitting our experience with colorectal cancer comparing controls to ERAS. And our atrial fibrillation rate has gone from close to 6%, just under 6%, down to 1.5%. But what's also interesting is that even our tachycardia rate uh, post-op, which is not pathologic but present, has been dramatically and significantly reduced. And when I just think about the number of cardiology consults that are not being called for and, and, and all the other sort of interventions that you do with a new onset AFib, those are, I wouldn't say completely eliminated, but almost completely eliminated both on your service and our service, uh, which then leads not only to better outcomes, but also uh, cost savings. Uh, it, absolutely. And, and I think we see that in other complications as well. Yeah. Um, uh, wound infection is, a, is a, certainly one we've seen a major dramatic improvement in. Uh, and not just deep space infections, but even superficial cellulitis. So if you looked at all types of incisional infections requiring intervention. Uh, again, for these uh, major gynecologic uh, cancer surgeries, it used to run about 15, 16% was our historic average. Um, after we went to the ERAS protocol, we now have that down to 4%. And if you think about, it, again, the number of representations to the office, readmissions, or even major wound complications, uh, that's a dramatic savings for the system and obviously much better for patients. We've seen it as well in um, our DVT rate. Uh, historically, gynecologic cancers have a very high DVT rate. And before we did DVT prophylaxis, 25 to 30% of these patients would have a DVT after surgery. Uh, that's come down a lot with, uh, with heparin prophylaxis. We 
got that down to closer to 5%. Since we've gone to ERAS, it's 1% of patients who have a DVT or a PE. And again, that's the early mobilization principle, getting patients physiologically back to normal more quickly. They're up and walking around the hospital. So to bring it full circle, so we, we first talked about riot, but now with fewer DVTs, fewer episodes of atrial fibrillation, fewer uh, wound infections, those patients then can get to their intended chemotherapy, radiation therapy, right on schedule or even earlier than has traditionally been in the past. So, um, so we start with the patient encounter, we go to the carbohydrate loading, we go to the fluid management, we go to the early mobilization, and then the re reduction in complications. Then the medium term is return to intended oncologic therapy is better, and perhaps there's better long-term outcomes as well. Any, anything else you'd like to add about the sort of the sea change and the dramatic difference that ERAS has made on the cancer patient? I think one of the things that we've been most fascinated by when we actually look at the experience on our service is how the reduction in variation in treatment has led to reductions and variations in outcome. So that when everyone on the service is managing the patients in a similar way, when you're using evidence-based principles to guide your routine perioperative care, whether it's fluid management, pain management, diet management, what you start to see is that the patients are having fewer complications or leaving the hospital in a more consistent manner, and they're getting back to oncologic therapy in a more consistent manner. So we, as one metric, we looked at our experience of patients resuming chemotherapy within 28 days of surgery. And historically, for us, that was about 60% of patients were able to resume chemotherapy. Now it's more than 80% of patients are resuming their chemotherapy after surgery. So that what that tells us is that the patients are resuming chemotherapy. They've avoided a major complication, but also functionally, the patient is coming into the office ready physically, psychologically, emotionally to begin chemotherapy again. They're not coming in exhausted, still recovering from their surgery, which means the patients are getting back to normal life more quickly. They're getting through their therapy and on with the rest of their lives in a, a more timely manner. Yeah, that's a, an excellent point. The, the whole emotional and social stress of a surgical encounter is, is reduced. And um, so I want to thank you very much. This has been a fascinating discussion. Um, as we're both sort of great believers in this uh, protocol, but I think it's really going to revolutionize cancer surgery and all other kinds of large GYN and large colorectal procedures. Thanks, Kevin. My pleasure. Thank you, Ron.